0: So my main uh, problem is the original meaning of the speech and press clauses. This is part of a big, bigger project about the evolution of ideas about speech and press freedoms uh, at the founding, but uh, for, per- for purposes of this paper, it's basically an intellectual history of speech and press freedoms and the relationship of that intellectual history to the meaning of the First Amendment uh, circa 1790, 1791, um, when these ideas are being debated uh, and, uh, and put into effect in the First Amendment. Uh, so the basic uh, problem is both the relationship between the speech and press clauses uh, and um, uh, what is it that those clauses mean, uh, at what level uh, of Constitutional Discourse is that meaning to be identified. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so the basic premise of the project is that we can't actually understand what the speech and press clauses mean unless we take a step back and uh, try to understand a broader discourse of uh, rights at the founding, uh, and that that in turn requires us to take a step back and think more broadly about uh, social contract theory and its relationship to constitutionalism. Uh, So, social contract theory is important here because it begins with the concept of natural rights that I argue is integral to the way the founders thought about speech and press freedoms. Uh, And there are kind of two different formulations that are operating here. So one is that we have a relatively thin concept of natural rights. Natural rights are just anything that you could do without a government. Uh, and that that is limited by natural law, here natural law is defined only as a restraint against injuring others. So under this view, we're beginning here and then when we enter into a social contract, we assume reciprocal social obligations that then allow for the retained natural rights to be regulated in the public interest. Uh, So there the scope of the natural liberty is in some sense restrained uh, by the social contract. Another view is that your natural rights are actually inherently restrained by reciprocal social obligations. That we're born into society and therefore even in a state of nature we have obligations to each other not just against injury but also to provide for one another's well-being. Uh, And so on this view, when we enter into a social contract, we're not actually giving up anything. We're just translating the natural uh, liberty into a retained natural liberty uh, that then we are able to regulate in the public interest again. And so although people are talking in very different ways about the scope of retained natural liberty, uh, the end level conclusion is very similar which is that natural liberty can be retained in the public interest. Now additionally, natural liberty can only be restrained uh, with the consent of the people. Uh, And so that's an essential condition for uh, the revolutionaries when they're talking about rights to life, liberty, and property in the Declaration of Independence. The notion is that we have these retained natural rights, therefore they cannot be regulated by some other people they have to be regulated by us but to assert that you have these natural rights is not an it's not an anti-regulatory assertion so liberty can still be restrained in the public interest property can still be uh, restrained in the public interest and so forth so this is all relevant to this project because speech and printing is clearly a natural right we know that not only because people say that these are natural rights, but just thinking, what is a natural right? It's a thing that we can do in the state of nature without the intervention of a government. Therefore, obviously, speaking and printing are natural rights. Now, what gets tricky is uh, speaking and uh, printing also have some level of legal protection in the customary British constitution. So for instance, uh, in 1695, the Licensing Act expires and it's recognized that people have uh, a customary constitutional right, a positive law right against being restricted in their printing uh, by a licensing regime. And so this is a right that is a right that translates your natural liberty, your right to print, into a rule about what the government can or can't do. About what it has to do or what it cannot do. So that's a positive right. That's a right about the content of law. It's not a more abstract concept of a retained natural right that just this liberty interest that can be restrained in the public interest. And so one of the challenges of sorting through all the founding era evidence, and one of what I think is a significant problem with the literature, Uh, is that people either are operating on the assumption that all of these discussions are legal discussions, they're about the content of law, about what the government is or isn't allowed to do under the customary British Constitution or later under the American uh, state and federal constitutions, or they're arguing that it is a uh, more abstract natural right and usually then they're taking the Lockean conception of natural rights, the natural rights are rights limited by a rule against injuring others, And then they're taking the reservationist Jeffersonian view that we actually reserve all of our natural liberty upon entering into society, that that natural liberty then can't be abridged, right? the language of the First Amendment. And that leads to a very strong libertarian notion of the First Amendment, which is a categorical denial of federal authority, at least against any sort of restriction of uh, speech that isn't directly abridging the rights of others. Uh, And so I wanna take on that position and I wanna take on the position uh, that all of these discussions are actually about the content of law. And so the way that I do that is to say uh, that there is actually a lively founding era discourse about translating natural rights into positive law. Uh, And not only is that debate lively, but it's also deeply contested. There are different views at the founding about how we take natural rights and turn them into determinate, uh, or at least more determinate, legal restraints on government. So one view is that we look to the content of the customary British Constitution. So we look to what the common law has to say about how far we can restrict natural liberty. That's a view that I generally associate with the Federalist Party. Is the position that federalists are taking in the late 1790s and so we have all sorts of assertions in the late 1790s by federalists about there being uh, governmental authority not only to restrict natural liberty and the public interest but that what that allows or disallows the government to do is to be uh, determined by common law, to be determined by artificial reason, the reason of the law. By contrast, we have a different uh, understanding among some Jeffersonians that there is a less lawyerly way that we should go about determining the content of retained natural rights, that retained natural rights are rights that are regulable in the public interest, and that it's not up to lawyers to determine uh, what the public interest allows or disallows. And so now we have, under this view, a vibrant public conversation about how far retained natural liberty uh, should or shouldn't be restrained under law. They're making all sorts of legal assertions, uh, but those are just the conclusions of a, a process of reasoning about what the public interest does or does not require. And so when we look to the founding era evidence and we see people making diametrically opposed statements about the content uh, of the right to freedom of speech, my argument is that actually at a higher level of abstraction, there is some agreement when we understand the framework in which we're operating, when we understand the contested methodological moves that Federalists and uh, Republicans are making, we can see that at a higher level of abstraction, there's a recognition of speech as a natural right, and then there are contested implications of that. Do we look only to the common law to figure out what the scope of that retained natural liberty is, or do we allow for a more uh, vibrant conversation uh, and, uh, and then have d- debates about whether sedition does or doesn't? promote the uh, public interest, whether prosecutions for just uh, a government power to prosecute sedition does or doesn't uh, promote the public interest.